This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, for those of you who may not know, I'm Brian Danesberg, lead pastor here at Alliance Bible Church. And uh, if you're not um, from here, just want to give you a warm welcome and uh, say we're glad that you're spending some time uh, together today doing this and uh, thinking about uh, these sorts of things. Spiritual warfare. C.S. Lewis in uh, Screwtape Letters said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Two equal and opposite errors. One is to disbelieve and the other is to have an inordinate interest in them. Demons lurk around every corner. Uh, Whether we dismiss the supernatural world and see everything as um, uh, having natural causes, that's one way we we go. We say it's not spiritual, it's purely psychological or sociological or it's biological, or we dismiss the natural world and see everything as having only a spiritual cause. So it's not psychological, it's not sociological, it's not biological, it's spiritual. Neither view is biblical. One view dismisses the spiritual world, the other dismisses the material world, and it doesn't take us long in the scriptures to understand that God created both body and soul. He created both physical and spiritual, uh, the physical and spiritual world. So we should expect uh, there to be both physical and spiritual causes to our problems. We should expect there to be both physical and spiritual causes to our problems. Now, when we hear the word spiritual warfare, we have all sorts of wonderful sensational images and thoughts that come into our heads at this point. There's probably a movie playing at Marcus right now that goes down this road, sensationalizing the demonic world. And sometimes when we hear the phrase uh, spiritual warfare, that's what we think about the latest horror flick playing in the theaters. Um, That is the exception, not the rule. I think the devil uses that as a distraction to try to get you to think that's his M.O. When all the while he's sneaking up behind your back with something less subtle. Because the word Satan does mean deceiver. He wants to stay off your radar. He does not want to operate in such a way that he's easily spotted by you. So, um, we're going to redefine the problem today. We're going to redefine it. And we're going to do it by looking at the passage of Scripture that throughout the history of the church has been taught on, talked about, expounded, when addressing this topic of spiritual warfare. And that's Ephesians chapter 6. 
verses 10 to 20. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to have it open. We are going to be looking at it together. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 10 to 20. Let me read it for you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So from this text, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at topic of spiritual warfare, who we are battling, what we are battling, and how to battle. There's the outline. Who we are battling, what we are battling, and how to battle. First, who we are battling. Paul says our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So immediately it sounds like Paul is dismissing the physical world. But reading a passage in context is important. Paul is not saying there's no such thing as flesh and blood evil. He himself struggled with flesh and blood evil, like the repeated unjust imprisonments and beatings that he received at the hands of flesh and blood. In fact, already in this letter in Ephesians 4, Paul has warned his readers about flesh and blood evil. In chapter 4, he told them to avoid flesh and blood evil like... Greed, anger, sexual impurity. So when Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it can't mean Paul doesn't think flesh and blood evil exists. It can't mean that. He's experienced it firsthand, and he tells Christians repeatedly to avoid it. What he must be saying is that the nature of our ultimate opposition is spiritual. That is, behind flesh and blood evil, there are spiritual forces. Behind flesh and blood evil, there are spiritual forces. So when we see racism, or genocide, or looting, or gossip, all of that is flesh and blood evil. But there is something behind, above, and beyond those flesh and blood evils that make them more than just flesh and blood evils. Behind flesh and blood evil is something that isn't flesh and blood. Now, in the modern world, we've got struggles with this. The modern Western world, we have trouble with this idea. Uh, Because, and and you've experienced this, you've lived in this, um, much of the modern Western world says Everything has a natural cause. 
predominant worldview is everything has a natural cause. Therefore, everything has a scientific explanation. Now, if all flesh and blood evil has a natural cause and therefore a scientific explanation, then crime, poverty, war, violence, they all must have a natural cause. So goes the story. Now, how does that play out? What are those natural causes? Well, you'll hear things like, the natural causes for, for those evils are things like bad psychological factors. Uh, you weren't raised right. You weren't educated right. Or bad sociological factors. You know, bad social systems. And we look at the flesh and blood evil around us and we say there has to be a natural cause to this and we can figure it out. And because it's got natural causes, we can fix it. That's the modern Western mindset. But I'm telling you, it's wearing thin. It's wearing thin. Andrew Del Banco, who calls himself a secular liberal, teaches sociology at Columbia University. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And the first line in his book is this. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. A gulf has opened. This is coming from a secular liberal who teaches at Sociology at Columbia University. He says, a gulf has opened between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And he goes on and he says, we have jettisoned in the West this idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. He said, we've gotten rid of that. He said, we don't believe that anymore. In fact, he says, we don't even like the word evil. And the reason, he says, we don't like the word evil is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. And so uh, Del Banco says, instead we use medical terms. We call it dysfunction or pathology. And we don't use moral terminology. But as, as, as Del Banco unfolds his, his thinking on this, he says as time has gone on, it's become harder and harder to say that Holocausts and ethnic cleansings and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. And in his book, he turns to uh, the very famous interaction in the book, The Silence of the Lambs, okay? depicted in the movie. Right? It's the place where uh, the young policewoman, Officer Starling, remember Officer Starling? She goes uh, to um, the jail to meet for the very first time the monstrous serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. And she goes to his cell and she's looking at him, and she's hearing about all the things that he's done, and she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? And he overheard her, and he begins to speak. And this is what he says, and I realize it's very hard to read this without hearing Anthony Hopkins. But here's what he said. He said, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. 
And he says, look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And then Del Banco, who's quoting this, says, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. And he goes on to point out that human history's bloodiest century, the 20th century, came about when incredible advances were made in education and science. So if all evil has natural causes, why is it evil was at its worst when education and science were at their best? Naturalism is struggling to account for this. But the Bible doesn't have a problem accounting for this. Because there is such a thing as a supernatural world. We are not fighting mere natural causes. We are not fighting mere flesh and blood evil. There is a real demonic world. Behind, above, beyond all flesh and blood evil are spiritual forces. Okay? That's who we're battling. Second, what are we battling? What are we battling? Paul gives it to us when he talks about the devil's schemes in Ephesians 6. The devil's schemes. This is a very interesting word. Uh, in the world of Greek literature, this word for scheme, um, it's methodia, method. Uh, in, this word was, was, was often used in literature outside the Bible to describe how a wild animal cunningly stalks and then pounces on its prey. It's a very graphic word. Very interesting. So you can think of the devil as a predator who's cunningly stalking prey. There's an intelligence to it. There's a slyness to it. It's interesting that Paul would use this, and he uses schemes, methods, it's plural, which is saying essentially the devil has a portfolio of strategies. He has a portfolio of strategies to employ. Now, what are those? Well, the name, again, Satan, means deceiver. So if the essence of of the devil is deception, think to yourself what his schemes or strategies might be. This is where we have to, again, check our affinity for science fiction movies at the door. This is where Christians have gotten sloppy a bit in thinking through spiritual warfare. We've got images of demons flying around our homes and entering bodies and causing bizarre things to happen. It's the extreme. It's not the rule because Satan's primary goal is to deceive you, not scare you, deceive you, not scare you. Um... What are those schemes? John White, who's a Christian counselor, wrote a book uh, years ago. And uh, in it, he said, here's how the devil works. He says, if you take a piano, go find a piano, you open up the lid, whatever you note, whatever note you sing into the piano, that corresponding string will resonate. Open up a lid to a piano, sing a note into it. Whatever note you're singing, the corresponding string is going to reverberate. You haven't touched it. You haven't touched the key. You haven't touched the hammer. You haven't touched the the string itself. You haven't touched it. And yet it's vibrating to your voice. And White goes on to explain that this is what the devil does. The devil cannot, cannot make a good person bad. The devil takes a flawed person and makes them worse. 
In other words, the devil plays on what's already inside you. He opens up your lid and he starts singing notes into you. He aggravates what's already in you through lies. He aggravates what's already in you through lies. Thomas Brooks, who was a 17th century pastor, tackled this subject of Satan's schemes. He wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Let me say it again. This, it, you can still get it. Uh, in fact, there, I think there are online versions, uh, e-versions of it that are like 99 cents. You can get paperback form. Precious Remedies, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Thomas Brooks, 17th century pastor. The whole book is dedicated to um, unpacking 40, 40 different strategies Satan employs to accomplish his goal. 40 different notes he tries to sing into people's lives, to lift your lid and sing into it. 40 different strategies. Let me mention a few of those. The first, Brooks talks about, is Satan shows you the bait and hides the hook. He shows you the bait and hides the hook. He, he gets you to look at the short-term pleasure of what this will do while hiding the long-term misery it will create for you. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have heard this story. Eskimos have an interesting way of killing wolves. They'll take a dagger, they'll take a knife, they'll coat it in seal's blood or whatever, let it freeze. Then they do it again and do it again and do it again. So it's got multiple layers of seal blood on it. They, they attach the dagger knife to a stick or whatever, mount it up. And uh, obviously the smell of blood is, gets a wolf going. Um, the wolf will come and start licking it. It's just got layers and layers of seal blood. It's delicious for a wolf. And uh, as, the, as the wolf licks, he starts licking more and more feverishly with his appetite growing. Well, eventually he gets to the point where he's licked through all the blood, seal blood, and now he's licking the knife. And it cuts his own tongue. But because he's been tasting blood for the last period of time, he doesn't feel it. And eventually the wolf will die because it's licked its tongue to the point where it's, there's, it isn't anymore. This is what, this is what Satan does. He's going to show you the bait. He's going to hide the hook. He's going to show you the short-term pleasure and hide the long-term misery. That's one device. Second, by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. By getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. Here's what this sounds like. (laughs) I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy. I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. Getting you to rationalize sin is virtue. Next, by showing you the sin of Christian leaders. So you say to yourself, well, he did too. Nobody's that pure. He did it too. Nobody's really that pure. Next, by overstressing the mercy of God. So you say to yourself, do it. God will forgive you. That's his job. Overstressing the mercy of God. 
Next, by making them bitter over suffering. So what you say is, I've suffered, I've had it hard, uh, so I deserve this. I've suffered, I've had it hard, it's been tough, so I deserve to indulge this. This is how many powerful men in high positions of, of authority fall. You know this story. Nobody knows how much I've sacrificed to get here. So I deserve this. Next, by showing Christians how many bad people seem to me living great lives. So you'll say, I might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. Might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't work. I'll give you another one. By, By getting you to compare one part of your life to another. By getting you to compare one part of your life to another. So Satan will say to you, Satan will say to you, I'm really good over here. And here and here. So eh, it's okay if I do this. I'm really good over here. I'm really good over here. I'm really good over here. So it's okay if I go over here. You want an extreme form of that? <coughs> Mafia hitmen. I'm good to my mother. Okay, I kill people, but I'm really, really good to my mother. It's an extreme form of it. I'm really good over here and here and here and here. So it's okay if I'm not over here. Next, by causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. Causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. A side note here. Best two bits of parenting wisdom I've ever been given by older, wiser folks. Number, number one, the best gift I can give my kids is to love their mom as Christ loved the church. Best gift I can give my kids is to love their mom as Christ loved the church. Nothing breeds more security in children than to see and know that dad and mom love each other deeply. But the second was this, and it's related to this point. For every criticism I give one of my kids, I need to give them four or five compliments. For every criticism you give your kids, you've got to give them four or five compliments. Why is that? Because deep down inside all of us, if we're being honest, we know there's something wrong with us. We know there's something wrong with us. And therefore, the criticisms really lodge. They have staying power. They stick. Compliments don't. When you fire off a compliment at one of your kids, they're wrestling with it. Because they're wrestling with that deep down knowledge that says there's something wrong with me. This is one of the, Satan's tactics, one of his strategies. He's, Thomas Brooks is saying that, that uh, for every one look at your sins, you need four or five looks at your Savior. For every one look at your sins, you need four or five looks at your Savior. And one of the devil's schemes is to make sure that that doesn't happen. Next, by causing Christians to obsess over past sins that have done damage and can't be undone. By causing Christians to obsess over past sins that have done damage and can't be undone. So one of Satan's strategies is to get you to think often about past sins that have had enduring consequences, that have hurt or destroyed in some way. He wants you to go back there and relive that. Next, by making Christians think the troubles they're going through must be punishments. So you say to yourself, this wouldn't have happened if God wasn't mad at me. 
this wouldn't have happened if God wasn't mad at me. This is the, the philosophy of Job's miserable comforters. They charged him with some unknown grievance against God, as, and that's the cause of his suffering. We can quickly become just like his miserable comforters. Let me give you one more. By making people think that the inner struggles and feelings they have, Christians couldn't possibly have. So what you say is, if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. If I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these struggles. That's just a sampling. Satan is playing you. He knows what strings you've got. Don't be unaware of the devil's schemes. Know the devil's schemes. Know which ones he likes to use on you. Know what strings you have. He's a cunning predator. He employs a bunch of different strategies to try to hunt you down. So let's look last. How do we battle? Who we battle? We've looked at what we're battling. How do we battle? Now the verbs that describe putting on the armor... It's profound here. It indicates a a past one-time action that is complete. A past one-time action that is complete. In other words, you don't put the armor on while the arrows are raining down on you. You put your armor on before the battle starts. Why is that important? Why is it important that you're in full armor before the battle starts? If things are going okay in your life, if there are no great disappointments or failures so that you're really not being tempted to despair, uh, there's no persecution or major criticism, so you're not tempted to anger or resentment, if you don't feel like there's any real battles going on, what happens? You spiritually coast. You coast. When circumstances are good, we coast. We don't have much of a prayer life. We don't work on an understanding of the Scriptures. It's very superficial. We have relatively light involvement with the church. You're not working on deep change in your life. You're not working on deep spiritual growth. Well, then the flaming arrows start flying, and you don't have your armor on. And when things go bad, then all of a sudden you're in church every week. When things go bad, then you're reading your Bible, and then you're praying every day. Then you're working hard to to, to minister to your own soul, but it's too late. The armoring of your soul takes time, and you cannot do it like that. The armoring of your soul is a daily grind. It's a daily discipline. It should be a daily joy. So your entire Christian life is meant to be lived in full battle gear. You're supposed to put your armor on the day you became a Christian, and you will not take it off till the day you go to be with Jesus. Past one-time action that has continuing results. This is not something you do at some future point. You do it now. So let's look at them specifically. Belt of truth. The belt of a soldier, of a Roman soldier, held everything together. It makes sense that Paul would begin with the belt of truth, the truth about who we are, who God is, what God has done in the world and in human history. All of that holds the Christian together. And of course, the source of that truth is God's Word. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In order to armor your soul, you're going to need to saturate yourself in the truths of the Bible. Let me give you one example of why truth is is critical to spiritual warfare. 
one of the truths the Bible maintains is that human beings are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. Okay, that's a truth from the Bible. Human beings are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. In spiritual warfare, Satan is going to try to get you to reject this truth. He's going to try to get you to disbelieve this. So you say, well, I'm not that bad. I don't kill people, so I'm not that bad. The result of disbelieving the Bible's truth on this is we have an overinflated view of ourselves. It becomes pride. You have an overinflated view of yourself. If you disbelieve the Bible, disbelieve the, the Bible's teaching on how sinful and flawed and messed up we are, then when suffering comes, it'll make you bitter. Why? Why? If you have an overinflated view of yourself, when suffering comes, it's going to make you bitter. Why? Because you're going to say to yourself, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I am not a candidate for this. My candidacy is of a higher level that should be immune from this kind of treatment. So we need to continually saturate ourselves in the truths of God's Word. Second is a breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate was for protection against the enemy's blows. And Paul says, righteousness is our protection. Paul is saying the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us by faith is our protection. So what does that look like practically? We have been given Jesus' righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect life. And by faith, we get credit for it. So on one level, when you become a Christian, God looks at you and sees Jesus. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failures. He sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. Remembering that is great protection against one of Satan's strategies that we looked at earlier. Satan wants you to look more often at your sin than your Savior. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness means looking at your Savior more than your sin. So if you're a Christian, then you can look at yourself in the mirror and you can say, because of what Jesus has done, when God looks at me, He sees Jesus. When God looks at me, He sees Jesus. By faith, when God looks at me, it's as if I lived Jesus' life. That protects you from all sorts of feelings of failure and self-condemnation. And it fills you with joy and security. Gospel of peace footwear. Gospel of peace footwear. Bible says that we are by nature objects of wrath. Now, we are not born Christians. We are not born Christians. We're born sinners deserving of God's justice. But through the gospel, our relationship with God has changed from one of wrath and alienation to one of peace. And there's nothing Satan can do to change that. You're at peace with God by faith because of what Jesus has done. Now, the Bible has a variety of ways to talk about um, God's love, but on one level, it's perfectly right to say there's nothing, if you're a Christian, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more than He already does. His love for me was demonstrated practically on the cross. That's an important truth to preach to yourself. We live in a performance-based society, performance-driven society. In other words, your value is based on your performance. Your worth is based on your performance. 
And that causes us to run hard and kick ourselves when we fall short. Remember the gospel. In the gospel, your value isn't based on your performance. Your value is based on what Jesus did for you on the cross. How much must Jesus value you for him to willingly lay down his life for you? He doesn't die for nobodies. He dies for somebodies. So you didn't close the deal at work or you were rejected for that promotion. So what? So what? Your value in God's eyes is not determined by your performance. Your value in God's eyes is demonstrated in what Jesus was willing to do for you. That's the gospel. When you meditate on it, it yields peace. Here's another one. Shield of faith. Faith is mentioned hundreds of times throughout the Bible. Critical to the Christian life. Indispensable to winning the war. Um, As often as we talk about it, (laughs) we struggle to understand biblically what faith really is. Uh, John Murray defined it this way. You want to know what faith is? Faith is knowledge, conviction, and trust. It's knowledge, conviction, and trust. Knowledge, conviction, trust. Knowledge, there's information, accurate information. Conviction, there's a deep feeling about the information that one has. Right? There's a difference between what a Christian, in fact, a Christian believes in God versus the demons who believe in God. Demons have the information. They don't have the conviction. And then third is trust. It's information that produces a passion or a desire that leads to an action. Therefore, I will follow him. Information leading to desire, leading to action. That's biblical faith. So let me illustrate this. When I was a, uh, when I was a kid... Uh, we were living in a parsonage, northern Minnesota. Yes, Viking country. Uh, and our, and uh, I and our siblings, my siblings, developed a fun practice of jumping off the stairs into Dad's arms. Two-story house, fourteen steps. We didn't jump from the top stair. We wanted to, but Dad said no. Uh, but we did push the boundaries of this. And I do remember getting to the seventh step. And, uh, and we did it a lot, so we got pretty good at it. Uh, and, and eventually, you get to the point where it's, it's a really fun game to play. And so when, when you turn to Dad and say, stairs? You know, we're, we're sprinting for the stairs. We're, we're running up third, fourth, fifth step, turning around, throwing ourselves off, and he's there, he's catching. Bam. I mean, you're not even thinking about it. It's autopilot. Then Grandpa came over. And as he watched this, he wants to get in on the action. And I remember looking at him thinking, he's old. Is this going to work? So I remember climbing up the stairs. I started with the third step. Let's see if you can handle this, Grandpa. Instead of just like willy-nilly throwing myself off the third step, I kind of just leaned just to make sure he was okay. 
and uh, we were going to end. We never got to the place with Grandpa that we did with Dad. Why is that? I didn't know Grandpa like I knew Dad. I didn't know Grandpa like I knew Dad. I was around Dad every day. We'd talk and interact. Not so with Grandpa. Grandpa lived a ways away. I had a deeper knowledge of my dad than I did Grandpa. And as a result, trusted him more than I did Grandpa. See, some people portray faith as a blind leap into something completely unknown. That's not so. Faith is an incredibly important battle tactic, but it's difficult to trust somebody you know little about. The best illustration I know of in the Scriptures is, this, is uh, the storm story in Luke 8. When Jesus and the disciples are in a boat, you remember what happens. Jesus falls asleep going across, falls asleep, storm comes up. Must have been bad because you've got professional fishermen who are freaking out over it. And uh, they wake the sleeping, sleeping Jesus. They say, we're going to die if you don't do something about this. He calms the storm and first words out of his mouth are, where is your faith? Where is your faith? You know what their response is? Who is this? Which I think their response answers the question, why did they react this way to the storm? Their question, who is this? Tells you why they reacted to the storm the way they did. They didn't really know him. He was grandpa in the boat. He wasn't dad. Faith is an incredibly important battle tactic, but it's difficult to trust somebody you know little about. Knowing really well the object of your faith is indispensable to faith itself. Anxiety and anger, take anxiety and anger, anxiety and anger's roots are a lack of faith and trust in God. Both of them. Anger and anxiety are siblings. They're siblings and they have a common root. A lack of trust, lack of faith in God. Uh, Helmet of salvation. Paul is saying the salvation that awaits us in the future is a protection for us. The fact that Paul's mentioning our future salvation, think about this, it suggests that an important battle tactic is setting our minds and our hearts on the future. Living today with eternity in view. Think about this, guys. How, many, how often during the course of a day do you think about 100 years from now? How often? How often do you contemplate your own mortality? Let me give you two unconventional practices to help you with this battle tactic. Number one, attend as many funerals as you possibly can. Attend as many funerals as you possibly can. remember reading a memoir of an atheist who spent time in a Christian community to study Christians, like a biologist going into the bush to study animals. I mean, it was bizarre. Um, one of the things that months, she spent months doing this, one of the things that happened is one of the leaders within the Christian community died. 
and she went to the funeral. This is a gal, Ivy League trained, mid-20s. She says, this is the first funeral I'd ever been to. 25 years old, graduated from Yale, atheist. First funeral she'd ever attended. Those are related. Those are related. Attend as many funerals as you possibly can. That's the first one. Um, Second, unconventional. (laughs) Frequent visits to assisted living facilities. Nursing homes. And if you have kids at home, figure out a way to do that. Take your kids there. We lived across the street when I was in great state of Minnesota. Uh from a nursing home, and my mom made a deliberate effort to take us regularly to the nursing home there. And we would visit a couple of folks, bringing them Christmas cookies, singing carols, hanging with them. And uh, these were people who were on the, the home stretch. Do it. Last, sword of the Spirit. number of ways to understand how the Holy Spirit is our sword. I want to focus on just one aspect to it. Listen to uh, these verses from Paul in the previous chapter of Ephesians. Just listen to it. He says, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Okay? This is what's very interesting. And this is particularly appropriate for our technologically oriented world where everybody says, well, I miss church. I can catch the podcast. Okay? I want you to notice in these verses, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. How? It's a command, he's saying. Be filled. Imperative. You. You. Be filled. How? By speaking, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Very interesting verses. I don't have time to unpack, unpack all of it. Here's what Paul seems to be saying. He seems to be saying that believers fill one another up with the Spirit when they gather together to sing worship songs together. When they speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs from the Spirit, they fill one another up with the Spirit. You're not going to be able to do that when you're listening to the podcast of the sermon in your car. Flesh and blood presence in the church is critical if you're going to win this war. Critical if you're going to win this war. Okay? Those are all the tools. Look, demonic activity has been sensationalized. And one of the things I'm trying to do is to, to bust you out of that if you've got that view of it. Satan means deceiver. The last thing he wants to do is be easily spotted in your life. The last thing he wants is to be easily spotted. He wants to sneak up behind you. He wants to be in camouflage. He wants to hide from you so that he can work his stuff. God has given us all the resources we need to win. Let's pray.
And Lord, I do pray for all of us in this room. We're engaged in a real war. The evils around us are not just produced by natural causes. There's real spiritual forces that live behind flesh and blood evil wherever it exists. And Lord, we engage in that every day. We engage in that every day. And so I pray that you would, first of all, help us to understand there is a real Satan out there who is a cunning predator, who is stalking us, who's employing a whole mess of schemes and methods to get us. I pray you give us uh, a spiritual sight to see what strings we have. What notes is our enemy trying to sing into our lives? Help us to see that. But then, Lord, we want to come back to this passage. Paul knew what he was talking about. And he's given us a whole arsenal of weapons to be employed in this battle. I pray that that would become part of our daily grind in this Christian walk. That the armoring of our souls would be not something we put off, but something we do daily. And Lord, for those who are in Christ, we know a day is coming when a climactic battle will be fought and there is no mystery as to who will emerge the victor of that one. It'll be Jesus. So I pray that you would help us fight like we've already won. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.